The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favourite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Tonight, we'll be continuing with The Enchanted April. But before we do, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a big stretch where you are and feel all the tension release from your muscles. The day is over, and all that matters now is that you get the rest you deserve to take on tomorrow. So let's take some nice, deep breaths to help you settle in. Breathe in, and imagine all your worries are being sucked into a little cloud. And then exhale, and watch that cloud drift away. Once more now. Inhale. And exhale. You can repeat this as many times as you need to feel fully relaxed while I recap our last episode. Last time, Mrs. Fisher confronted Lady Caroline about the food bills from the first week. Lady Caroline disarmed her immediately and eventually said she would pay the full housekeeping bill from week one as a gift, and Mrs. Fisher had no choice but to be mollified. Mrs. Arbuthnot had been contemplating the change she had seen in Mr. Wilkins since his arrival and wondered if Lottie's theory on San Salvatore's magical properties could be correct and she was determined to write to her husband, but was still worried he may not reply. Mrs. Fisher, meanwhile, was increasingly uncomfortable, for she felt a rather unwelcome change in herself occurring, that she was on the brink of an unripening, a feeling of excitement and youthfulness she hadn't experienced since childhood, but she was determined to push down deciding it to be undignified. Mr. Wilkins noticed this unsettled behaviour in Mrs. Fisher, and Lady Caroline encouraged him to reach out to her. His aim was to be liked and trusted by all the women in the house, in order for him to be front of mind when they inevitably needed his professional services in the future. He was so proud He found himself so proud and fond of his wife at this time for giving him this opportunity that he felt completely in love with her all over again. That is where we pick up tonight. Mr. Wilkins leaning into Mrs. Fisher's distress and Mrs. Arbuthnot about to write to her husband, Frederick. 
So, just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 17 On the first day of the third week, Rose wrote to Frederick. In case she should again hesitate and not post the letter, she gave it to Domenico to post, for if she did not write now, there would be no time left at all. Half the month at San Salvatore was over. Even if Frederick started directly he got the letter, which of course he wouldn't be able to do, what with packing and passport. Besides not being in a hurry to come, he couldn't arrive for five days. Having done it, Rose wished she hadn't. He wouldn't come. He wouldn't bother to answer. And if he did answer, it would just be giving some reason which was not true, and about being too busy to get away and all that had been got by writing to him would be that she would be more unhappy than before. What things one did when one was idle. This resurrection of Frederick, or rather this attempt to resurrect him, what was it but the result of having nothing whatever to do? She wished she had never come away on holiday. What did she want with holidays? Working was her salvation. Work was the only thing that protected one, that kept one steady and one's values true. At home in Hampstead, absorbed and busy, she had managed to get over Frederick, thinking of him lately only with the gentle melancholy with which one thinks of someone once loved, but long since dead. And now this place, idleness in this soft place had thrown her back to the wretched state she had climbed so carefully out of years ago. Why if Frederick did come, she would only bore him. Hadn't she seen in a flash quite soon after getting to San Salvatore that that was really what kept him away from her? And why should she suppose that now, after such a long estrangement, she would be able to not bore him, be able to do anything but stand before him like a tongue-tied idiot with all the fingers of her spirit turned into thumbs. Besides, what a hopeless position to have, as it were, to beseech. Please wait a little. Please don't be impatient. I think perhaps I shan't be a bore presently. Thousand times a day, Rose wished she had let Frederick alone. Lottie, who asked her every evening whether she had sent her letter yet, exclaimed with delight when the answer was at last yes, and threw her arms around her. Now we shall be completely happy, said the enthusiastic Lottie. But nothing seemed less certain to Rose and her expression became more and more the expression of someone who has something on her mind. Mr. Wilkins, wanting to find out what it was, 
strolled in the sun in his Panama hat and began to meet her accidentally. I did not know, said Mr. Wilkins the first time, courteously raising his hat, that you too liked this particular spot. And he sat down beside her. In the afternoon, she chose another spot, and she had not been half an hour there before Mr. Wilkins, lightly swinging his cane, came round the corner. We are destined to meet in our rambles, said Mr. Wilkins pleasantly, and he sat down beside her. Mr. Wilkins was very kind, and she had, she saw, misjudged him in Hampstead, and this was the real man, ripened like fruit by the beneficent sun of San Salvatore. But Rose did want to be alone. Still, she was grateful to him for proving to her that though she might bore Frederick, she did not bore everybody. If she had, he would not have sat talking to her on each occasion till it was time to go in. True, he bored her, but that wasn't anything like so dreadful as if she bored him. Then indeed her vanity would have been sadly ruffled, for now that Rose was not able to say her prayers, she was being assailed by every sort of weakness. Vanity, sensitiveness, irritability, pugnacity, strange, unfamiliar devils to have coming, crowding on one and taking possession of one's swept and empty heart. She had never been vain or irritable or pugnacious in her life before. Could it be that San Salvatore was capable of opposite effects, and that the same sun that ripened Mr. Wilkins made her go acid? The next morning, so as to be sure of being alone, she went down while Mr. Wilkins was still lingering pleasantly with Mrs. Fisher over breakfast to the rocks by the water's edge where she and Lottie had sat the first day. Frederick by now had got her letter. Today, if he were like Mr. Wilkins, she might get a telegram from him. She tried to silence the absurd hope by jeering at it. Yet, if Mr. Wilkins had telegraphed, why not Frederick? The spell of San Salvatore lurked, even it seemed, in notepaper. Lottie had not dreamed of getting a telegram, and when she came in at lunchtime, there it was. It would be too wonderful if when she went back at lunchtime, she found one there for her too. Rose clasped her hands tight round her knees. How passionately she longed to be important to somebody again. Not important on platforms, not important as an asset in an organisation, but privately important to just one other person, quite privately, nobody else to know or notice. It didn't seem much to ask in a world so crowded with people just to have one of them, only one out of all the millions to herself, someone who needed one, who thought of one, who was eager to come to one. How dreadfully one wanted to be precious 
all the morning she sat beneath the pine tree by the sea. Nobody came near her. The great hours passed slowly. They seemed enormous, but she wouldn't go up before lunch. She would give the telegram time to arrive. That day, Scrap, egged on by Lottie's persuasions and also thinking that perhaps she had sat long enough, had arisen from her chair and cushions and gone off with Lottie and sandwiches up into the hills till evening. Mr. Wilkins, who wished to go with them, stayed on Lady Caroline's advice with Mrs. Fisher in order to cheer her solitude. And though he left off, cheering her about eleven to go and look for Mrs. Arbuthnot, so as for a space to cheer her too, thus dividing himself impartially between these solitary ladies. He came back again, presently mopping his forehead, and continued with Mrs. Fisher where he had left off. For this time, Mrs. Arbuthnot had hidden successfully. There was a telegram too for her, he noticed when he came in. Pity he did not know where she was. Ought we to open it? He said to Mrs. Fisher. No, said Mrs. Fisher. It may require an answer. I don't approve of tampering with other people's correspondence. Tampering? My dear lady. Mr. Wilkins was shocked. Such a word, tampering. He had the greatest possible esteem for Mrs. Fisher, but he did at times find her a little difficult. She liked him, he was sure, and she was, in a fair way, he felt, to become a client. But he feared she would be a headstrong and secretive client. She was certainly secretive, for though he had been skillful and sympathetic for a whole week, She had, as yet, given him no inkling of what was so evidently worrying her. Poor old thing, said Lottie, on his asking her if she could perhaps throw light on Mrs. Fisher's troubles. She hasn't got love. Love? Mr. Wilkins could only echo, genuinely scandalized. But surely, my dear, at her age... Any love, said Lottie. That very morning he had asked his wife, for he now sought and respected her opinion, if she could tell him what was the matter with Mrs. Arbuthnot, for she too, though he had done his best to thaw her into confidence, had remained persistently retiring. She wants her husband, said Lottie. Ah, said Mr. Wilkins, a new light shed on Mrs. Arbuthnot's shy and modest melancholy, and he added, Very proper. And Lottie said, smiling at him, One does. And Mr. Wilkins said, smiling at her, Does one? And Lottie said, smiling at him, Of course. And Mr. Wilkins, much pleased with her, thought it was still quite early in the day, a time when caresses are sluggish, pinched her ear. Just before half-past twelve, Rose came slowly up through the pergola and between the camellias 
ranged on either side of the old stone steps. The rivulets of periwinkles that flowed down them when she first arrived were gone, and now there were these bushes, incredibly rosetted, pink, white, red, striped. She fingered and smelt them one after the other so as not to get her disappointment too quickly. As long as she hadn't seen for herself, seen the table in the hall quite empty except for its bowl of flowers, she still could hope. She still could have the joy of imagining the telegram lying on it, waiting for her. But there is no smell in a camellia, as Mr. Wilkins, as Mr. Wilkins, who was standing in the doorway on the lookout for her and knew what was necessary in horticulture, reminded her. She started at his voice and looked up. A telegram has come for you, said Mr. Wilkins. She stared at him, her mouth open. I searched for you everywhere but failed. Of course she knew it. She had been sure of it all the time. Bright and burning, youth in that instant flashed down again on Rose. She flew up the steps, red as the camellia she had just been fingering, and was in the hall and tearing open the telegram before Mr. Wilkins had finished his sentence. Why, but if things could happen like this, why, but there was no end to... Why, she and Frederick, they were going to be, again, at last. No bad news, I trust, said Mr. Wilkins, who had followed her. For when she had read the telegram, she stood staring at it, and her face went slowly white, curious to watch how her face went slowly white. She turned and looked at Mr. Wilkins, as if trying to remember him. Oh no. On the contrary, she managed to smile. I'm going to have a visitor, she said, holding out the telegram. And when he had taken it, she walked away towards the dining room, murmuring something about lunch being ready. Mr. Wilkins read the telegram. It had been sent that morning from Mezago and was, I'm passing through on way to Rome. May I pay my respects this afternoon? Thomas Briggs. Why should a telegram make the interesting lady turn pale? For her pallor on reading it had been so striking as to convince Mr. Wilkins she was receiving a blow. Who is Thomas Briggs? he asked, following her into the dining room. She looked at him vaguely. Who is... she repeated, getting her thoughts together again. Thomas Briggs. Oh, yes, he is the owner. This is his house. He's very nice. He is coming this afternoon. Thomas Briggs was at that very moment coming... He was jogging along the road between Mezzago and Castagneto in a fly, sincerely hoping that the dark-eyed lady would grasp that all he wanted was to see her, and not at all to see if his house was still there. He felt that an owner of delicacy did not intrude on a tenant. 
but he had been thinking so much of her since that day. Rose Arbuthnot. Such a pretty name, and such a pretty creature. Mild, milky, mothery in the best sense. The best sense being that she wasn't his mother, and couldn't have been if she had tried. Her parents were the only things impossible to have younger than oneself. Also, he was passing so near. It seemed absurd not to just look in and see if she were comfortable. He longed to see her in his house. He longed to see it as her background. To see her sitting in his chairs, drinking out of his cups, using all his things. Did she put the big crimson brocade cushion in the drawing room behind her little dark head? Her hair and the whiteness of her skin would look so lovely against it. Had she seen the portrait of herself on the stairs? He wondered if she liked it. He would explain it to her. If she didn't paint, she had said nothing to suggest it. She would perhaps notice how exactly the moulding of the eyebrows and the slight hollow of the cheek. He told the fly to wait in Castagneto and crossed the piazza, hailed by children and dogs who all knew him and sprang up suddenly from nowhere and walking quickly up the zigzag path, for he was an active young man, not much more than thirty. He pulled the ancient chain that rang the bell and waited decorously on the proper side of the open door to be allowed to come in. At the sight of him, Francesca flung up every bit of her that would fling up. Eyebrows, eyelids and hands, and volubly assured him that all was in perfect order and that she was doing her duty. Of course, of course, said Briggs, cutting her short. No one doubts it. And he asked her to take in his card to her mistress. Which mistress? asked Francesca. Which mistress? There are four, said Francesca, scenting an irregularity on the part of the tenants, for her master looked surprised, and she felt pleased, for life was dull, and irregularities helped it along at least a little. Four, he repeated, surprised. Well, take it to the lot then, he said, recovering himself, for he noticed her expression. Coffee was being drunk in the top garden, in the shade of the umbrella pine. Only Mrs. Fisher and Mr. Wilkins were drinking it, for Mrs. Arbuthnot, after eating nothing and being completely silent during lunch, had disappeared immediately afterwards. While Francesca went away into the garden with his card, her master stood, examining the picture on the staircase of that Madonna by an early Italian painter, name unknown, picked up by him at Orvieto, who was so much like his tenant. It really was remarkable, the likeness. Of course, his tenant that day in London had had her hat on, but he was pretty sure her hair grew just like that off her forehead. The expression of the eyes, grave and sweet, was exactly the same. He rejoiced to think that he would always have her portrait. 
He looked up at the sound of footsteps, and there she was, coming down the stairs just as he had imagined her in that place, dressed in white. She was astonished to see him so soon. She had supposed he would come about tea time. Until then, she had meant to sit somewhere out of doors where she could be by herself. He watched her coming down the stairs with the utmost eager interest. In a moment, she would be level with her portrait. It really is extraordinary, said Briggs. How do you do, said Rose, intent on only a decent show of welcome. She did not welcome him. He was here, she felt, the telegram bitter in her heart, instead of Frederick, doing what she had longed Frederick would do, taking his place. Just stand still a moment. She obeyed automatically. Yes, quite astonishing. Do you mind taking off your hat? Rose, surprised, took it off obediently. Yes, I thought so. I just wanted to make sure. And look, have you noticed? He began to make odd, swift passes with his hand over the face in the picture, measuring it, looking from it to her. Rose's surprise became amusement, and she could not help smiling. Have you come to compare me with my original? She asked. You do see how extraordinarily alike. I didn't know I looked so solemn. You don't. Not now. You did a minute ago, quite solemn. Oh, yes. How do you do? He finished suddenly, noticing her outstretched hand, and he laughed and shook it, flushing, a trick of his, to the roots of his hair. Francesca came back, the Signora Fisher, she said, would be pleased to see him. Uh, who is the Signora Fisher? He asked Rose. One of the four who are sharing your house. Then there are four of you. Yes, my friend and I found we couldn't afford it by ourselves. Oh, I say, began Briggs in confusion, for he would not best have liked Rose Arbuthnot, pretty name not to have to afford anything, but to stay at San Salvatore as long as she liked as his guest. Mrs. Fisher is having coffee in the top garden, said Rose. I'll take you to her and introduce you. I don't want to go. You've got your hat on, so you were going for a walk. Mayn't I come too? I immensely like being shown round by you. But Mrs. Fisher is waiting for you. Won't she keep Yes, said Rose, with the smile that had so much attracted him the first day. I think she will keep quite well till tea. Do you speak Italian? No, said Rose. Why? On that, he turned to Francesca and told her at a great rate, for in Italian he was glib, to go back to the signora in the top garden and tell her he had encountered his old friend, the Signora Arbuthnot, and was going for a walk with her and would present himself to her later. Do you invite me to tea? He asked Rose when Francesca had gone. Of course, it's your house. It isn't. It's yours. 
till Monday week. She smiled. Come and show me all the views. Come and show me all the views, he said eagerly. And it was plain, even to the self-depreciatory Rose, that she did not bore Mr. Briggs. Chapter 18 They had a very pleasant walk, with a great deal of sitting down in warm, time-fragrant corners, and if anything could have helped Rose to recover from the bitter disappointment of the morning, it would have been the company and conversation of Mr. Briggs. He did help her to recover, and the same process took place as that which Lottie had undergone with her husband. The more and more Mr. Briggs thought Rose charming, the more and more charming she became. Briggs was a man incapable of concealments, who never lost time if he could help it. They had not got to the end of the headland where the lighthouse is, and Briggs asked her to show him the lighthouse, because the path to it, he knew, was wide enough for two to walk abreast and fairly level. Before he had told her of the impression she made on him in London, Since even the most religious, sober women like to know they have made an impression, particularly the kind that has nothing to do with character or merits, Rose was pleased. Being pleased, she smiled. Smiling, she was more attractive than ever. Color came into her cheeks and a brightness into her eyes. She heard herself saying things that really sounded quite interesting and even amusing. If Frederick were listening now, she thought, perhaps he would see that she couldn't, after all, be such a hopeless bore. For here was a man, nice-looking, young, and surely clever. He seemed clever, and she hoped he was, for then the compliment would still be greater, who was evidently quite happy to spend the afternoon just talking to her. And indeed, Mr. Briggs seemed very much interested. He wanted to hear all about everything she had been doing from the moment she got there. He asked her if she had seen this and that and the other in the house, what she liked best, which rooms she had, if she were comfortable, if Francesca was behaving, if Domenico took care of her, and whether she didn't enjoy using the yellow sitting room the one that got all the sun and looked out towards Genoa. Rose was ashamed how little she had noticed in the house and how few of the things he spoke of as curious or beautiful in it she had even seen. Swamped in thought of Frederick, she appeared to have lived in San Salvatore blindly and more than half the time had gone. What had been the good of it? she might just as well have been sitting, hankering on Hampstead Heath. No, she mightn't. Through all her hankering, she had been conscious that she was at least in the very heart of beauty. And indeed, it was this beauty, this longing to share it, that had first started off her hankering. Mr. Briggs, however, was too much alive for her to be able to spare any attention at this moment for Frederick, and she praised the servants in answer to his questions, and praised the yellow sitting room, without telling him that she had only been in it once, 
then was ignominiously ejected. And she told him she hardly knew anything about art and curiosities, but thought perhaps if someone would tell her about them, she would know more. And she said she had spent every day since her arrival out of doors, because out of doors there was so very wonderful and different from anything she had ever seen. Briggs walked by her side along his paths that were yet so happily for the moment her paths and felt all the innocent glows of family life. He was an orphan and an only child and had a warm, domestic disposition. He would have adored a sister and spoiled a mother and was beginning at this time to think of marrying For though he had been very happy with his various loves, each of whom, contrary to the usual experience, turned ultimately into his devoted friend, he was fond of children and thought he had perhaps now got to the age of settling if he did not wish to be too old by the time his eldest son was twenty. San Salvatore had latterly seemed a little forlorn, He fancied it echoed when he walked about it. He had felt lonely there, so lonely that he had preferred this year to miss out a spring and let it. It wanted a wife in it. It wanted that final touch of warmth and beauty, for he never thought of his wife except in terms of warmth and beauty. She would, of course, be beautiful and kind. It amused him how much in love with this vague wife he already was. At such a rate was he making friends with the lady, with the sweet name as he walked along the path towards the lighthouse, that he was sure presently he would be telling her everything about himself and his past doings and his future hopes, and the thought of such a swiftly developing confidence made him laugh. Why are you laughing? she asked looking at him and smiling. It is so like coming home, he said. But it is coming home for you to come here. I mean really like coming home to one's... one's family. I never had a family. I'm an orphan. Oh, are you? said Rose with the proper sympathy. I hope you've not been one very long. No, I don't mean, I hope you have been one for very long. No, I don't know what I mean except that I'm sorry. He laughed again. Oh, I'm used to it. I haven't anybody. No sisters or brothers. Then you are an only child, she observed intelligently. Yes. And there's something about you that's exactly my idea of a... of a family... She was amused. So cosy, he said, looking at her and searching for a word. You wouldn't think so if you saw my house in Hampstead, she said, a vision of that austere and hard-seated dwelling presenting itself to her mind, with nothing soft in it except the shunned and neglected Dubarry sofa. No wonder, she thought for a moment clear-brained that Frederick avoided it. There was nothing cosy about his family. 
I don't believe any place you lived in could be anything but exactly like you, he said. You're not going to pretend San Salvatore is like me. Indeed, I do pretend it. Surely you admit that it is beautiful. He said several things like that. She enjoyed her walk. She could not recollect any walk so pleasant since her courting days. She came back to tea, bringing Mr. Briggs, and looking quite different, Mr. Wilkins noticed, from what she had looked till then. Trouble here. Trouble here, thought Mr. Wilkins, mentally rubbing his professional hands. He could see himself being called in presently to advise. On the one hand, there was Arbuthnot. On the other hand here was Briggs. Trouble brewing. Trouble sooner or later. But why had Briggs telegrammed, acting on the lady like a blow? If she had turned pale from the excess of joy, then trouble was nearer than he had supposed. But she was not pale now. She was more like her name than he had yet seen her. Well, he was the man for trouble. He regretted, of course, that people should get into it. But being in, he was their man. And Mr. Wilkins, invigorated by these thoughts, his career being very precious to him, proceeded to assist in doing the honours to Mr. Briggs, both in his quality of sharer, in the temporary ownership of San Salvatore, and the probable helper out of difficulties with great hospitality, and pointed out the various features of the place to him, and led him to the parapet, and showed him Mezago across the bay. Mrs. Fisher, too, was gracious. This was the young man's house. He was a man of property. She liked property. She liked men of property. Also, there seemed a peculiar merit in being a man of property so young, Inheritance, of course, and inheritance was more respectable than acquisition. It did indicate fathers, and in an age where most people appeared neither to have them nor to want them, she liked this too. Accordingly, it was a pleasant meal, with everybody amiable and pleased. Briggs thought Mrs. Fisher a dear old lady, and showed he thought so, and again the magic worked and she became a dear old lady. She developed benignity with him, and a kind of benignity which was almost playful. Actually, before tea was over, including in some observations she made him the words, my dear boy. Strange words in Mrs. Fisher's mouth. It is doubtful whether in her life she had used them before. Rose was astonished. How nice people really were. When would she leave off making mistakes about them? She hadn't suspected this side of Mrs. Fisher, and she began to wonder whether those other sides of her, which alone she was acquainted, had not perhaps, after all, been the effect of her own militant and irritating behavior. Probably they were. How horrid then she must have been. She felt very penitent when she saw Mrs. Fisher beneath her eyes, blossoming out into real amiability, 
the moment someone came along who was charming to her, and she could have sunk into the ground with shame when Mrs. Fisher presently laughed, and she realized by the shock it gave her that that sound was entirely new. Not once before had she, or anyone else there, heard Mrs. Fisher laugh. What an indictment of the loss of them. For they had all laughed, the others, some more, some less, at one time or another since their arrival, and only Mrs. Fisher had not. Clearly, since she could enjoy herself as she was now enjoying herself, she had not enjoyed herself before. Nobody had cared whether she did or not, except perhaps Lottie. Yes, Lottie had cared, and had wanted her to be happy, but Lottie seemed to produce a bad effect on Mrs. Fisher. While as for Rose herself, she had never been with her for more than five minutes without wanting, really wanting, to provoke and oppose her. How very horrid she had been. She had behaved unpardonably. Her penitence showed itself in a shy and deferential solicitude towards Mrs. Fisher, which made the observant Briggs think her still more angelic, and wish for a moment that he were an old lady himself, in order to be behaved to by Rose Arbuthnot just like that. There was evidently no end, he thought, to the things she could do sweetly. He would not even mind taking medicine, really nasty medicine, if it were Rose Arbuthnot bending over him with the dose. She felt his bright blue eyes, the brighter because he was so sunburned, fixed on her with a twinkle in them, and smiling, asking him what he was thinking about. But he could not very well tell her that, he said, and added, Someday. Trouble, trouble, thought Mr. Wilkins at this again, mentally rubbing his hands. Well, I'm their man. I'm sure, said Mrs. Fisher benignly, you have no thoughts we may not hear. I'm sure, said Mr. Briggs, I will be telling you every one of my secrets in a week. You would be telling somebody very safe then said Mrs. Fisher benevolently. Just such a son would she have liked to have had. And in return, she went on, I dare say I would tell you mine. Uh, No, said Mr. Wilkins, adapting himself to this tone of easy badinage. I must protest, I really must. I have a prior claim. I'm the older friend. I have known Mrs. Fisher ten days, and you, Briggs, have not known her one. I assert my right to be told her secrets first. That is, he added, bowing gallantly, if she has any, which I beg leave to doubt. Oh, haven't I? exclaimed Mrs. Fisher, thinking of those green leaves. That she should exclaim at all was surprising, but that she should do it with gaiety was miraculous. Rose could only watch her in wonder. Then I shall worm them out, said Briggs with equal gaiety. They won't need much worming out, said Mrs. Fisher. My difficulty is to keep them from bursting out. 
might have been Lottie talking. Mr. Wilkins adjusted the single eyeglass he carried with him for occasions like this and examined Mrs. Fisher carefully. Rose looked on, unable not to smile too since Mrs. Fisher seemed so amused. Though Rose did not quite know why, and her smile was a little uncertain. For Mrs. Fisher, amused, was a new sight, not without its awe-inspiring aspects, and had to be got accustomed to.